As COVID-19 vaccine rollouts get underway across the world, many are resting their hopes on vaccines as a pathway out of the pandemic. However, an increasing number of people believe vaccines are unsafe or unnecessary. Vaccine hesitancy is nothing new. Indeed, it is as old as vaccination itself. So what can we learn from previous vaccine programmes about what drives hesitancy and how we can build trust? In this episode of Between the Lines, IDS Director Melissa Leach speaks with Heidi Larson from the London School of Tropical Medicine and founding director of the Vaccine Confidence Project about her recent book, Stuck, How Vaccine Rumours Start and Why They Don't Go Away. They explore the social and emotional factors that contribute to vaccine hesitancy, the role of misinformation, and they look at considerations for more holistic public engagement. Hello, I'm Melissa Leach. I'm director of IDS and I'm also a social anthropologist who has worked on issues of vaccines. And for this edition of Between the Lines, I'm really delighted to be speaking with Heidi Larson of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine about her new book, Stuck, How Vaccine Rumours Start and Why They Don't Go Away, which was published at the end of last year by Oxford University Press. Heidi, do you just want briefly to tell us who you are before we get into talking about the book? Sure, I'm Heidi and I'm, uh, it's great to be here. I'm an anthropologist, uh, but I've ended up working in a, in a highly interdisciplinary space as I've built the Vaccine Confidence Project, which is basically in seeing the, the emerging number of issues around the world uh, when I was working in UNICEF, I decided to come back to academia and build uh, this research group to try to understand, map, uh, inform um, what is going on on the ground around vaccines. Fantastic. So this is, of course, a moment when the world is gripped, the whole world really is gripped by the drama of vaccination around COVID. And so I think this conversation today couldn't be more timely. And I think the starting point partly is that, of course, we're seeing so much attention on vaccine development, vaccine supply, questions about global vaccine justice, who's going to get the different vaccines when they're available, how is that going to be equal to some degree, problems of vaccine nationalism as countries attempt to keep hold of vaccines for their own populations, really important questions about equity. But at the same time, of course, we've got some other really important issues which turn on vaccine delivery and demand. And in this context, we're seeing, we've seen growing attention to this problem, which is often called vaccine hesitancy. And the World Health Organization defines hesitancy as a delay in acceptance or refusal of vaccines, despite the availability of vaccination services. So I think that in a way is the starting point for, for the conversation that we might have about stuck because of course this came out with extremely relevant timing just as, as COVID vaccines were, were really sort of coming to fruition just before they began to be, to be rolled out. And you address head on this question of, in a sense, the, the, the demand side and what might inhibit people's, people's demand or, or confidence. So I wonder if you could start just by telling us a little bit about how long the book was in development and what, what is the background to it? What led you to, to write it at the time that you originally did before we get on to its relevance to the current moment? 
Well, I'm embarrassed to say how long this book has taken, but I guess some books need a long uh, incubation period. But I had the idea to do the book, um, oh, it must have been, uh, it was maybe 12 years ago, to be honest. And I was going to write the book about polio. Uh, I had been working a lot on the front lines in the global polio eradication alongside the Gavi and the introduction of new vaccines. But I was particularly struck by all the stories behind the stories, the politics, the culture, the religion, the things that at the 11th hour in this last stretch of eradicating polio, what was holding us back? It wasn't about the technology. It wasn't about, um, you know, it was very familiar virus. It was, um, I mean, there were so many practical elements that would have seemed it should have been eradicated by then, but it was all this other stuff that got in the way. And particularly the boycott in Northern Nigeria, um, which had no adverse event and was just a rumor really, but politically driven, that re and led to 20 plus countries being reinfected around the world. And, and just the power of one rumor in one state and the knock-on effect that that had globally I thought was was a book. But the more I got into researching, writing about it, uh, the more I realized this was much bigger than polio. And a lot of these, a lot of these issues were becoming apparent in a whole spectrum of vaccines. And I kept writing. And then in the meanwhile, I founded the Vaccine Confidence Project. Uh, and and we've just been the landscape has been evolving, and I kept adding things to this book. Um, and at one point, uh, when I signed the contract with Oxford, we said, "Okay, point in time, you can keep adding until." <laughs> so, um, and I was grateful for when they stopped me on that. But really, I finished the writing literally, you know, a month or two before COVID hit. Uh, and it was getting ready to move into the production. And then we got the, the news that there was a public health emergency of international concern that came out of WHO. And I said, I can't, to the editors, I can't end a book with a chapter on publics and pandemics without acknowledging that we're in the middle of a pandemic. So anyway, I was luckily able to add a, a prologue that kind of framed the book and really how everything in the book was about to unfold in the context of a pandemic. So it proved extremely prescient. And um, in a sense, I think what I really like about Stark is this, this kind of historical and also global sweep across a whole range of issues and vaccines. And of course, we mustn't forget that, that vaccine hesitancy, for want of a better term, goes back as far as vaccines themselves. I mean, the, the very first vaccines were, were, were often resisted. We had the Victorian Anti-Vaccination League in the UK. We then had a lot of resistance to compulsory vaccination through the smallpox period in Africa through the 70s. Um, so, I mean, what could you just tell us sort of in a way by way of, of, of overview of some of the themes that emerge for you of the sweep of, of vaccination issues that you cover in Stuck? Because you look at a lot of different cases and vaccines and in a way before we get to the specific case of COVID, what kinds of themes emerge about why rumours start and why they don't go away? 
Well, I went through a lot of exchange with the editors just in terms of how I framed the chapters, which would have been very different, were very different. They were more like different vaccines. Each chapter had a different vaccine. But, but at the end of the day, the core of it was really about issues of dignity, about emotional contagion, around trust issues. But I look at how rumors unfold. And also, I think the important thing is also putting it into the context we're in. Because the fascinating thing about vaccines is they touch on every nerve of politics, culture, religion, society, uh, sense of liberty. And also, it's so relational. I am actually quite frustrated right now with the current hyper-focus on misinformation because it's just fact-checking. I have no problem with fact-checking, but I think people feel like it's something tangible they can do in this messy, emotional kind of space full of beliefs that that's something tangible they can do, but it's not going to fix the problem. So the book is really trying to, one, frame what do I mean by rumors? How do how does that, as a, as a window... Uh, on this issue start to explain uh, the trajectory of spread and contagion of these sentiments. Fantastic. I mean, I'd, I'd like to come, us to come back to this specific question about information and the so-called infodemic in a, in a minute. But um, before I do that, I really just wanted to join in a little bit. I mean, one of the reasons that, that I was so interested and excited when Stuck came out and indeed have, have followed the work of the Vaccine Confidence Project is that this was an issue that I engaged with some time ago and wrote a book in which actually came out in 2007, which really seems seems another era now, but actually many of the, the, the same themes um, were alive and well then that are emerging and are, are, are covered in your book. And that was... That was a book with James Fairhead and collaborators in West Africa and in the UK, which we called Vaccine Anxieties, um, Global Science, Child Health and Society. And the focus at that point was childhood vaccines and, and the controversy of the moment, because I think books are often driven by, by a controversy, they kick it off. And at that time um, in the UK and in the US, we were dealing with the supposed link between MMR, measles, mumps and rubella vaccine and autism. And the major controversy that that kicked off um, around how far parents were trusting in that particular vaccine, but vaccines in general for, for their children. Um, and we also looked at some issues that were unfolding in West Africa, including the oral polio vaccine, um, example in northern Nigeria where, where we worked with a, a, a northern Nigerian anthropologist from that area and also um, at cases from Sierra Leone and, and Guinea and the Gambia um, around both routine childhood vaccine and vaccine trials and I think very much is as you say that rumours and questions of confidence are relational that was that was very much our, our conclusion and we actually call the book anxieties, vaccine anxieties, because we were interested in that double sense in which people are sometimes anxious about vaccines in a negative way, a worried way, but can sometimes be anxious for them. And we used anxieties in that positive sense of, of wanting and desiring and tried to explore why, why it was that people did sometimes want vaccines and, and sort of found that there were three layers of understanding at which these relationships were very important. Um, one was the, the bodily and in a way people's understandings of disease and of health and of what they actually thought vaccines were doing in their bodies and all sorts of 
interesting understandings of immunity or in West Africa, it was often framed in terms of um, protection and strength and what was it that gave bodily strength to one's children and vaccines often complemented all kinds of other things people were doing in an everyday way from, from, from washing and traditional medicines and food to Islamic amulets. Our second layer was the kind of community level and where anxieties often turned on, on, on how a vaccine might be undermining, but also might be strengthening the sense of one's community in a world at which it was, was under threat. And, and then the third related to a kind of more national and global level where, where I think our, our reading both of how, why we were, people were sometimes worried about vaccine trials and indeed, were worried in the case of the polio campaign in northern Nigeria was this enormous international effort to develop and pour resources into a campaign which often sat quite at odds with people's everyday worlds and priorities. So they were led to ask questions, bigger questions about the politics of that. So in, in the Gambia we had people in, in a pneumococcal vaccine trial going well we're not really sure what this vaccine is about so actually what is it that the medical research council is doing maybe they're interested in our children's blood as part of a transnational economy to sell back to people in the uk to make medicines for them there or in northern nigeria the rumors turned on um if if oral polio because polio wasn't the most significant disease or health issue people were facing what are these drops for our children's mouths with these enormous resources behind them and then then rumors started to turn on on um, the possibility of genocide against against the islamic states and 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 north south politics in nigeria and global politics which are of course issues that you talk about but I think this really drives home the, the questions of that deeper political embeddedness very often of people's anxieties. And it's something we then explored more recently um, in a briefing for the Social Science and Humanitarian Action Platform, which does look at COVID vaccines, which we'll come on to in a moment, but um, also tries to review, and I believe you and your colleagues contributed to this, some of this now really rich social science literature, which has emerged about understanding vaccine hesitancy confidence and and draws very similar conclusions about the relational nature of this and the contextual nature and how you can't pin down very easily specific factors which are about vaccines themselves actually vaccines are often a lens through which people express all kinds of broader anxieties and concerns about the relationships with each other, their relationships with the state, their relationships with, with the globe. And I think like you, I've always found vaccines kind of good to think with in a way about all kinds of kinds of issues. And it's why, why that won't really go away as a, a concern for us. So thinking then about that, that sort of history and that, that context, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit more on where COVID fits in, because because if if perhaps there are some continuities, if if we're saying vaccine hesitancy is as old as vaccines themselves, and and these concerns often are socially and politically embedded and contextual and relational, are there any new or different concerns or narratives that have emerged around around COVID vaccines that we ought to be ought to be taking note of? Well, I mean, we haven't had a pandemic of this scope since 1918. And I, I think just the sheer scale of it has is quite different. Um, and also, 
the newness of this vaccine, vaccines, how quickly these vaccines have been developed and the fact that they're targeting, you know, so many people around the world so quickly. Um, what's this about? To be honest, I don't think most people knew it normally takes 10 to 15 years to, yeah. until COVID came along and said it was doing it quickly. And uh, thanks to terms like warp speed, it didn't help. Um, but I, I think that I think it's a huge opportunity for the vaccine and immunization co community, as it were, uh, because no point in the history that I can think of have we have publics ever had such a tangible sense of the value of vaccines. Uh, you you read a lot of economists' cost effectiveness studies and whatever, but it all feels very theoretical or you know, out there and it, you know, it's nothing that would ever change the mind of an individual. It might influence a finance minister's decision, but not sure if it even would do that, um, unless maybe the abstract was succinct. But um, I, I think that, you know, we see the power of a vaccine now to get us back to work, to get us back to school, to get us to socialize, the travel industry. I have people calling me from industries that I thought they had the wrong number, but no, they were like, help us understand how we're gonna get our employee base to buy into these vaccines because we don't want them working without protection. So I think the sheer value of it is one thing, the newness, the speed, the mm -hmm. fact there are multiple ones. It's 40 years since HIV was reported. We still don't have a vaccine. No, I. I I think that's absolutely right and gives, in a way, gives some cause for concern because you do find yourself asking, why is it that we don't have a good vaccine for, we don't have a vaccine for HIV, we don't have a good vaccine for TB, which mm. is arguably um, killing more people than, than COVID across the world, yeah. but often in, in places of poverty. I think that raises a lot of questions about global vaccine justice actually and why it is that that um the this particular vaccine for covid has been fast-tracked in the extraordinary way that it is but um even taking that into account and as you said there's a lot i mean okay people maybe are there are some uncertainties to do with speed and variety and, and some of the novel technologies which are being being used for for the covid vaccines um, but there's also a lot of positivity, almost the kind of latching onto this vaccine as the thing that's going to save us and get us out of this pandemic. But we're also, aren't we, seeing um, reported evidence of, of hesitancy, which is causing, causing policy concern because it might undermine the levels of herd immunity that vaccines might be able to, to, to achieve. Um, and it does seem that that hesitancy is not completely evenly distributed amongst different people. So I know in the UK, there's a kind of emergent narrative that black and ethnic minority groups are more hesitant. I mean, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what you see as some of the, the reasons perhaps behind the issues of hesitancy we're, we're seeing with COVID and actually how do social factors such as ethnicity or class or inequalities or gender shape vaccine hesitancy and and can one actually pin these things down so easily to social factors is that is that a good way to look at the issue 
I think it, it absolutely is. And frankly, the thing that I think across those different domains is it really, again, comes down to trust. Um, it depends on whether, I mean, those are all features of people's identity, their gender, their ethnicity, their, I mean, all the different labels, as it were, or characterizations. And if that, if any of those aspects of your identity has meant that you've been marginalized, you've been stigmatized, you've been put more at risk. I mean, I think of female, the gender aspect. Uh, if you were a young woman working on a polio campaign, nine of them were killed, partly because they were women working outside of the house. So uh, it wasn't, e I mean, some of it wasn't even, it was mixed between they were working for this bigger international initiative that we don't trust, but it was also particularly because they were kind of breaking the cultural, um, culturally accepted mode. Uh, so these things, I mean, it, it, they're, they're all important in, and I think the important framings because, and it also depends where you live because you can be in one ethnicity or religion in one country and you're at top of the deck and somewhere else you're absolutely marginalized. So a lot of it um, is, is situation context, but it is an important way and it's definitely, we've seen it an issue here and in the, in the US, uh, the numbers are quite stark. No, I think I think that's absolutely right. And and that that point about it being contextual, it's not not always easy to label a single social factor. Often one's talking about intersecting inequalities mm -hmm. and sometimes ones that are that are, um, are, are very deeply located. I mean, I, I heard very interesting accounts in the in the US of of the alienation of certain often African-American groups from, from health systems that have never felt open and accessible to them. So, mm -hmm. so suddenly they're asked to come forward for vaccination in a place that's always felt alien, has never really met their needs or priorities that they might well have felt as a place of discrimination and why should they, they do so? So I think mm -hmm. that question of accessibility also interplays yeah. with people's experience of, of health services. Um, and you're absolutely right, we're seeing this with COVID, but there are also long-standing themes that you've, you've explored very much in the, in the book. So what about this question of, of information? I mean, we're, and, and the so-called infodemic. So I think there is a narrative, and it's certainly one we're seeing in the media and, and the World Health Organization is getting very concerned about the, the infodemic that they see going along with, with the COVID pandemic. And last year, it was an infodemic about the nature of COVID and was COVID real and was it actually all a conspiracy? And, and now we're seeing concerns about an infodemic of misinformation about COVID vaccines. And I think in that term, infodemic, one's both got the idea of misinformation, that there are people out there putting out wrong information, but also disinformation, information that's wrong, but also being put to political purposes, conspiracies, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, a lot of concern that with social media and, and media companies, it's very easy for these this kind of misinformation to, to spread. So to what extent do you think that's important or the heart of the problem? Or, or is this a fairly oversimplistic way of thinking about how information works? I'd just be really interested in your 
what, what your reflections through stock tell us about how we should be interpreting these 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 misinformation narratives now well i think also with infodemic which is just basically too much information overall but in this case it's i think we we tend to focus on the, the negative but it also is a feature because there's so much too much information some of it may be quite credible but the misinformation disinformation starts coming up because you know how do you sort through all of this and and they've been uh it people have been more clever with the <laughs> with the negative stuff than with the positive stuff unfortunately um i think it's i think it's a very um it's been, I think, leaped onto as something that you can possibly do something about. But it's, I really think it is a bit simplistic. Uh, and it's more of an in the moment thing to do, but it's not going to deal with the underlying issues. Uh, because for one thing, if it's fact checking about COVID facts, it's not going to be relevant to other vaccines. So we should be taking, I think, strategies that actually are about trust building and help address what things that cut across all vaccines and will additionally support COVID. I, again, I don't. I, I think it's important to make sure that um, blatantly wrong facts are corrected so that people don't go drink a quart of chloroquine and think that they're going to, you know, get better um but I, I i do think but to me the fact checking and corrections i think the biggest value of that is to flag to the public that don't believe everything you read because i think we need to the the longer lasting value i think is cultivating a public that is more critical about what they're reading i would hope that comes out of it but i do think it is like clipping off the head of weeds, as it were, without dealing with the roots, to be kind of cliche, but we, we do need to work on the underlying issues. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, it is an opportunity. We have these communities who are, when they're offered a vaccine, they're saying, no, thank you. And instead of closing the vaccine center or cutting the number of hours, I would keep it open and make my effort to gather people to use it as a town hall. Don't close the site, use it differently. Bring different incentives there. Bring the, the church leader there or the whoever, the school, the local trusted school teacher, you know, start having knitting circles in that vaccine center. Don't shut it down, make it comfortable, make it familiar hear why people weren't coming and start building that relationship which can only help moving forward i think that's a great idea and and might well go along with some some other things as well that are about about trust building um i mean i think you're absolutely right that the 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 infodemic the information part is 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 just the 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 tip as it were of the iceberg i think something else that is also always bothered me is that assumption that somehow publics are are just absorbing information or disinformation or misinformation as if they were kind of blank slates um whereas of course people are going to read things they're already critical to some degree i think i think we do we do publics a disservice by assuming that they're just kind of waiting there to kind of absorb whatever social media might tell people people are actually always going to be 
reading somewhat critically and interpreting um, according to their own their own experiences. And, and just as around um, the, the kind of so-called anti-vaccination campaigners and the assumption that, that that perhaps very particular group who've got certain health beliefs are able to influence everybody else. I think that's, that does a disservice to people who are reading what they read and thinking about it and already being critical about it. And you're absolutely right that 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 kind of, that kind of criticality, I think needs to be needs to be encouraged and maybe also, a more a more open approach to to the uncertainties afoot is also a more respectful way of opening dialogue rather than saying here are the facts when frankly around covid vaccines there are still quite a lot of uncertainties there are things yeah. that are not known um and perhaps a better basis for dialogue is to say look this is what we know this is what the facts are and these are the things that actually aren't unknown and then get a dialogue going about those but but maybe we could could turn in in this last part to to thinking about i mean building on what you just said about that making vaccination centers themselves be welcoming places for 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 discussion and for being of all kinds um what what else might be done how what what needs to 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 change in terms of the ways that that scientists are working, that public health authorities are working, that, that COVID might well have triggered. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about building trust around vaccines over the years, but maybe the COVID moment has brought a lot of these to the fore and we might, we might now see the opportunities for doing some things differently. So what, what would you see? What, do, what does the stock tell us about the ingredients for building, building trust or for rethinking messaging? Give us your, your way forward. Yeah, um, I, I think we need to learn to have difficult conversations. Um, and I think we need to start by being open to other people's views, even if we don't agree with them um, and hear them out. I, just that sheer act of listening can be important because then you know, you're not shutting down the conversation before you're starting. I think in the context of COVID, when you you know are in the interacting around the vaccine start by saying how are you doing this is a difficult time find out how they're doing in as a person as a family um or whatever their situation is and then get into the vaccine because one thing we've heard again and again in our in my personal research and as our group is people feel like numbers when it comes to vaccine you know it's next next jab, next jab, and you know, you're in and out seven minutes. I mean, now they have drive-through COVID too. Um, and I understand that that's for other, you know, for <laughs> timing reasons and trying to get a lot of people vaccinated. But I think there is a risk when it's too quick that you're not giving people the opportunity. I wanna know when the phone call comes and the people who are saying, sorry, I, I think I'm gonna give it a pass. Um, are we saying, um, do you want to tell me why, or is there any questions I can answer, or find out why, or say, shall I call you back in a week, or um, what are we doing to find out more? Um, I think that's going to be important. And I guess moving forward, just it, it really, again, it's so situational in terms of our political environment, the hyperpolarization, 
with you know what they call the cancel culture. I mean, I end the book talking about my hope um, for I call myself a patient optimist <laughs> because one I see that the current younger generation that's coming up is not the generation that this was a brand new toy and everyone thought it was just a great thing until we hit the wall. This youngest generation now is much more cognizant of the risks, much more cognizant to be at least not gobble everything up. I think also uh, in terms of this um, generation gap, as it were, uh, I think this emerging uh, senior, growing senior uh, doctors, scientists, whatever, who are much more fluent and comfortable with social media can go into the spaces where people's conversations are, which is not happening now. There's a lot of anxiety between the current, particularly more senior health authorities and scientists, and that messy space where people are talking about their feelings. And I think hopefully we'll, we'll go there. And I think on the, the last point is, is something I heard that I mentioned in the book was that uh, this teenager, Ethan Lindenberger said, he was talking about his mother who was a totally anti-vaccine, you know, it was gonna give him all kinds of problems. She didn't want him to have it. And he decided at 18 after some science courses and whatever that, he could drive a car, he could vote, and he could make his own decisions about vaccines. And he's actually mobilized a number of young um, growing children coming of age, as it were, whose mothers refuse vaccines. But he made, I think, one of the more most powerful statements I've heard to a, a huge forum at the EU saying, listen, my mother made that decision for the same reason that all of you are in this room. She cared about my health she wanted the best thing for me. And that's what she believed. And he said, I love my mother. She's a great mother for so many reasons. She is not a bad person. And this whole message to where the misinformation is, is in labeling people who, for whatever reasons, don't wanna take a vaccine or don't wanna give a vaccine to their children, that they have many other dimensions and do not, shut the door because of just that one choice they've made. I think that's a, a really brilliant point and probably a, a point to end on. So in a way, vaccines are touted as a technology. They are technical, they're high tech often, um, and yet they are deeply personal and deeply emotional and they vaccines get wrapped up with people's feelings about who they are about how they relate to each other in the most intimate sense as that lovely example just shows and they are also political and they don't i don't think we can wish those politics away but maybe the 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 task ahead is is to try and turn those politics to a to a good politics not a politics of division and distrust but a politics which is inclusive and inclusive of people who are feeling marginalized and actually can we use a more dialogue trust building approach to vaccination actually as a route to help build more democratic more inclusive politics and that might be the wish in a sense um, your book I think has shown very very well how vaccines constantly the, what, what happens with vaccines is, is often a kind of microcosm of, 
of those more personal and political things happening in the wider world and happening in people's lives. But, but taken the other way as well, uh, do vaccines and building vaccine confidence gives us a chance also to work on some of those broader dimensions of, of, of the personal, the social and the political that we all care about for a more positive future for us all. But Heidi, that's been a great conversation. I really, it's a fabulous book and I really, really would encourage everybody to read it. The foreword talks about the relevance to this moment, but in a way one doesn't need that. One just needs to, to, to read the book to see how accurate and prescient it is about capturing the moment that we're in and saying some extremely profound and important and wise things about it. So Thank you so much for, for talking to me and everybody, please, please read it. Thanks so much, Melissa. Thanks for listening. Check out links in the episode notes for related content. And if you have feedback and suggestions for upcoming episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at betweenthelines at ids.ac.uk or on Twitter with the hashtag idsbetweenthelines.